0: Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped on the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, But he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunder and lightning and a thick cloud of mountains and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought out the people, uh, brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they should break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down, and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you very much for reading for us, John. Please uh, do keep that scripture passage open. We're going to be diving into that together. Let me extend another invitation for you to uh, come to the prayer meeting or to join online if you're able to tonight. Um, as I mentioned, we, uh, we're looking for a new place to meet and to worship. Uh, we have a team that's been working on that from, uh, from way back in October. This month in particular, they're hoping to narrow down the options for us so uh so very soon we should uh, hopefully have something to announce in that regard but but do be praying and join us tonight if you're able to do so uh, but let's uh, turn to prayer now in fact let's ask god to help us as we consider um, exodus 19 together let's pray uh, father god we thank you so much for uh, for these words breathed out by your spirit uh, thank you for the events that they describe your uh, your gracious coming down to meet with your people on sinai Uh, Lord, thank you for your covenant commitment to us, uh, displayed uh, in these verses and uh, throughout your word. And so we pray this morning that you would uh, help us understand that commitment, your love for us uh, in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this last week we celebrated Valentine's Day, or at least some of us did. Uh, We actually never really make a big deal of it. The, The cynic in me believes that it is an opportunity for restaurants to charge twice as much And uh, based on the parking lot, it keeps Josh Early Candies in business. (laughs) Now, you can pray for Cheryl, obviously she is married to such a romantic. (laughs) Uh, In truth, like other holidays, Valentine's Day uh, can actually be a painful time of year. It draws attention to our relational aspirations. Uh, Many of those aspirations remain unmet. Uh, We no longer live in the world of Genesis 2, where marriage is marked simply by love poems. Uh, God made relationships to be perfect. Uh, But instead, we live in Genesis 3, a Genesis 3 world, where romance and marriage, yes, should be celebrated as God's good gifts, but due to sin, our enjoyment of those gifts is constantly frustrated. All of our relationships are impacted by the fall. Uh, Not least, our relationship with God himself. Uh, At the very heart of all of our problems is one simple fact, that though God made us for himself to live in relationship with him, we have turned our backs on him. Our relationship with our maker is broken. Uh, That is why the world is such a mess. And from our side, that relationship is irreparably damaged. Uh, There is nothing we can do to fix it. And and even if there there was left to ourselves, we had to admit uh, that we do not actually want to. Uh, This is the sad reality of humanity's state. I mean, what a joyful thing to focus on around Valentine's Day. And yet, here is the joyful thing. Uh, This is what the book of Exodus is all about. In one sense, it is a book of romance. It's packed full of romance. It is a story of God's romantic pursuit, uh, God's pursuit of his people. Uh, In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. Uh, Look down at Exodus 19, verse 4. Uh, See what it says. Uh, Listen to to these words, romantic words from God. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. Uh, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, this book is about God fighting for his people, fighting to win them back, fighting to bring them to himself. It's about God's commitment to cherish them as his treasured possession, uh, and ultimately, it's about a bigger romance. It's about God's pursuit of you. It's about God fighting for you. God fighting to bring you back to himself, about him going to great lengths to make you, uh, to make us his treasured possession, his beloved people. And uh, this chapter we've come to in Exodus chapter 19 it is really a pivotal point in the story. Uh, so far, we've seen God's courtship with his people, if you will, as he's brought them out of Egypt. And yet in Exodus 19, what we see is the wedding day. In this chapter, God permanently and publicly declares his covenant commitment to his people. Uh, And so I'm going to say this is actually a great passage for the week of Valentine's Day. It it was certainly unplanned, and yet it is perfect. Uh, It's perfect for us, no matter our relationship status, because it lifts our gaze to the relationship that really matters, our relationship with God himself. Uh, This passage reminds us that God loves us. It reminds us that God pursues us. uh, As God proclaims his unwavering commitment to us this morning, And to help us see that, we're going to look at at four things. This passage, uh, this wedding day, plays out in four parts. Uh, Firstly, we see a gracious declaration, a gracious declaration. Uh, Secondly, we're told of a global design, a global design. Uh, Then thirdly, there is this glorious descent, a glorious descent as God comes down to his people. Uh, But finally, in a more somber way, there is a grave danger as well, uh, a grave danger. Uh, the gracious declaration the global design uh, the glorious descent and the grave danger uh, these four things are present as God establishes his relationship his committed relationship with his people uh, so firstly let's look at this glorious uh, sorry this gracious declaration a gracious declaration uh, there on Sinai God publicly proclaims his desire to enter into a relationship with Israel uh, God wants to commit uh, and this is a two-way street. There is this exchange. Up on the mountain, uh, maybe you noticed, God speaks to Moses. He gives him a message to take back down the mountain. Uh, God reminds them of everything he's, he's done. And, and he says this in verse uh, 5. It is, if you will, his declaration of intent in verse 5. Uh, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Moses takes that message down uh, to the elders and the people, uh, and they respond with their own declaration in verse 8. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses goes back up the mountain and repeats these words to the Lord. And I want to suggest that this is very much like a wedding. Most weddings begin with a similar declaration of intent or declaration of consent. Uh, I usually try to explain this whenever I take a wedding, it's different from the vows that normally come later in the service. Instead, the purpose of this part of the service at the beginning is to make sure that both parties are there and are there willingly. That no one is coercing them to be there. No one has a gun to their backs. They're actually there because they want to be married. It's good to get that straight, isn't it? And so it is in Exodus 19. That what we see here is that God intends to commit to his people and his people intend to commit to him. Uh, now, consider those two aspects. Which, which one of these things surprises you the most? Uh, God's desire to marry his people, or is his people's desire to, to marry him? Uh, most of the married men in the room would uh, have to admit that we married up. Uh, what is most surprising to us, even shocking perhaps, is, uh, is that my wife chose to marry me. Uh, but when it comes to God and Israel, where is the shock? Of course, Israel would want to commit to God or at least should want to commit to God. He is the almighty, all-powerful, all-loving God. He's the one who's crushed their enemies. He's drawn them out. He has fought for them. He's provided for them again and again in the wilderness. God has led them on eagle's wings to himself. He's displayed his love and his power toward them again and again. Surely they want to be God's people. But we ought to be asking, why would God pursue Israel? Why would he commit himself to them? If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you'll know how fitting this question is, really. I mean, all we find in Israel is a bunch of unfaithful grumblers. From start to finish, they've proved themselves unbelieving, unfaithful, ungrateful, unsatisfied. In light of everything God has done for them, all they can do is complain. And now imagine you went out on a first date Uh, Within the first five minutes, your date tells you that your clothes suck, your face is ugly, and your personality stinks. I'm sorry if this is bringing back any painful memories for anyone. Uh, They tell you they wish they'd stayed home. They wish they'd spend the evening cleaning the toilet rather than spending their evening with you. Being with you is literally killing them. They'd rather jump off a cliff than join you on a second date. Now here's what you would do. You would excuse yourself to go to the restroom and then you would head for the door and you would leave them with the check. Uh, But that is nothing compared to Israel's sorry response to God, is it? Uh, And in many ways we could say it's nothing compared to my response, to your response, to the God who made us. Uh, He's given us life and breath and everything. Do we honor him? Do we give thanks to him? No, we complain again and again. Uh, We claim there's something wrong with him, with his love for us. Really, the surprise in Exodus 19 is that God doesn't just pick up the mountain and drop it on Israel's head. I mean, how incredible. Uh, This should completely blow our minds uh, more than anything else in the world. Uh, That God would commit to these people. That God would proclaim his willingness uh, to love and embrace people like this. And yet, this is the grace of God. This is what the Bible is all about. It's what Christianity is all about. God's undeserved, unmerited favor his unmerited, even demerited favor to, to frankly, stinking and godly, ungrateful people. This is what we see in this gracious declaration, God's declaration of love and grace to people like you, people like me. This is the true romance of God's word, his holy love towards a sinful people. And so, like any wedding day, like most at least, it opens with this declaration of intent, a gracious declaration of God's commitment to his people. But, but secondly, notice here the global design. The global design. That's our second point. And, and we want to ask, God is about to enter into this new relationship with his people, but we want to ask ourselves, what is it about? What is this relationship for? It's such an important question. It's, it's a question we should ask about marriage, about romance, isn't it? This is one of the very areas where our society seems to go so far astray. When we think of romantic relationships, we are frankly like sheep without a shepherd. Even in the most intimate and important relationships, we have to admit we're just making it up as we go along. Without God's word, we have no idea what marriage is or what it's about. Marriage is created by God, and so we have to ask, what is it for? In the words of Genesis chapter 2, why isn't it good for man to be alone? Now, this is not a sermon on marriage, or at least not about human marriage, and so I'm not going to spend all of my time answering that question, but let me give it a a little bit of a go. Uh, What we can say is that God does have a design for marriage. Uh, And his design isn't that marriage is there to meet your needs. The point of Genesis 2 is not that Adam was lonely. I know the problem is God has given Adam a task. He's given him something to do. He's given him this call to rule over and subdue the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply, to work the Garden of Eden and to keep it. In other words, there is a mission that God has for man. And Adam cannot complete that mission alone. Being fruitful and multiplying is particularly hard for one person. And so God didn't give Adam a companion. Did you notice that in Genesis? No, what, gives, what God gives Adam is a helper, someone to help him in his mission of, of loving and serving God in God's world. And listen, I bring that up not just as some sort of aside on marriage, but I think it has some incredibly important parallels in our text. There is a parallel when we consider what is God's design for his relationship with his chosen people. Is the goal for this covenant simply to be uh, one of mutual enjoyment, one of reciprocal fellowship? I mean, what an amazing thing that that we can know God and and God knows us as his people. Uh, What a gift that we can hear him speak to us through his word uh, and that we can respond in prayer knowing that he listens to us. Uh, What an amazing thing to consider. Like Moses, one day we will see God face to face. Our fellowship with him will be unhindered for eternity. Uh, But is that the whole story? In Exodus 19, this is what I'm saying. Israel and God are getting married. And so is this when the credits roll and and they just wander off into the sunset? Uh, No, in one sense, that is what it's about. But it's not what it's all about. But look down at verse 5 again. Uh, Here we see this global design. And we began to consider this last week. The purpose of God's relationship with Israel is, in fact, just like marriage. It has an outward-looking mission to it. It's not about them. It's not just about them. Rather, it's about blessing flowing to all nations. Look down at verse 5 with me. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Now we see there an intimacy that I've just described, this special relationship between God and his people. But look at how verse 5 goes on. For all the earth is mine, verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests, what does that mean? We actually began to discuss that in, in Sunday school this morning. And we have to ask, what do priests do? Well, they represent humanity to God. They, they represent humanity to God in prayer and in sacrifice. Uh, but they also represent God to humanity. Uh, they, they call on people to enter into relationship with God by declaring his word to them. Uh, and this is the point of the global design. Uh, this is what the relationship is all about. It's, be, it's about being fruitful. It's about multiplying. It's about bearing witness to God. Firstly, by passing on the word of God uh, uh, amongst them to their children and their children's children, but it's more than that. Israel were intended to be a holy nation, a light in the midst of a dark world, a city on a hill. Uh, that is a biblical statement, and I have to say it's, it's not a statement about America, just to be clear. It's a statement about the people of God, God's people, his chosen people. Uh, God's aim is for his relationship with them to have a global impact. Or we could put this in familiar words, couldn't we? What is the chief end of man? Do you know the answer to that question? The chief end of man isn't just to enjoy God, although it is that. It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. As Moses will tell the people on the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy 4, God's global design is this, that as they live in covenant with him in the sight of the peoples, then the nations will hear all these statutes, and they'll say this, surely this great nation is wise and understanding as a people. And they'll go on, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to them as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as the law that I set before you today? God has a global design for his people, and we should say that doesn't just relate to Israel. Uh, No, his people of God is the church, uh, the church, the true Israel in Jesus Christ. And his plan is that we would be a light uh, to the world. Uh, This is his purpose in his relationship with you, his his relationship with us. That we would be fruitful, that we'd multiply, that we'd go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, That we'd draw people into his church, his covenant people, baptizing them and teaching them what it means to belong to him. And I should be clear, the point of this is not to give you a guilt trip about evangelism. I think most of us uh, already feel guilty enough about that. Uh, Now, what I want you to notice here is this, that that being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation is really something we are. It's not just about something we do. Uh, What I really want to leave you with is this sense of connection, a connection between uh, this covenant commitment that God has to you and his commitment to draw other people to himself. The connection between enjoying an intimate relationship with God uh, that also overflows and has an impact on the world. If you want to grow as an evangelist, the most important thing you can do is commit yourself to more deeply enjoy your relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. If you want to grow as an evangelist, the most important thing you can do is commit yourself to, to deeply enjoy your relationship with Jesus. If we as a church want to grow in our witness to the Lord, the most important thing we can do is grow in our heartfelt worship of him. Uh, To put it uh, in clear, though uh, blunt terms, the purpose of our marriage to God, we should say, isn't just that we would have kids, that we'd be fruitful, that we'd multiply. If that's what we think it's about, then we'll tank, of course. Uh, But, of course, there is an impact. Uh, We need to have an impact on the world. At the heart of our relationship with God isn't evangelism. That's a terrible mistake. Uh, And yet as God brings us into relationship with him, uh, as we begin to know him and love him and obey him, it it should have an impact beyond us to other people. Uh, The design of that relationship is global. Uh, That's the point. That's the outcome of this relationship. Uh, We need to relate these things properly. God draws us into covenant relationship with himself, and that overflows in drawing in other people. And so then, we've considered this gracious declaration, but also this global design of God's marriage to his people. But let's move on to consider the glorious descent, the glorious descent. And the point here is this, to establish a new relationship with his people, God comes down to dwell with them. And he does this in a very dramatic way, doesn't he? In a way that they have never seen before. As one commentator points out, the events in verse 9 and following are some of the most dramatic events in the book of Exodus, even more dramatic than the parting of the Red Sea or all of those plagues that we read about in the previous chapters. In the past, God has unveiled his mighty hand. But now on this mountain, God himself comes down in a special, hard-to-explain way. Moses will see God face-to-face, All the people will see this thick cloud much more terrifying and and shocking than that pillar of fire or cloud that has led them by night and by day. Instead, there there are thunders, lightnings, thick clouds and trumpet blasts. And the people need to prepare for this big day. God gives them a few days to get ready, to consecrate themselves, to wash their garments, to purify themselves. Uh, Not an easy feat when we think about this because uh, there are, what, around a million people and all they have is is this stream of water flowing out of a rock at the foot of the mountain. Uh, But it is very much like a wedding, isn't it? You'd be very surprised if you went to a wedding and the groom was standing there at the altar in his sweats. Or the bride was walking down the aisle in some old pajamas. The preparation demonstrates the seriousness, the solemnity of what's about to take place. As we'll see in a moment, it demonstrates the inherent danger involved in, in a holy God coming down to dwell with an unholy people. But for now, let's, let's reflect on this descent itself. Here on the mountain, God displays his glory. And we should ask, why does God do that? Why all of this smoke? Why all of, the, why all of this fire? Why all of this, these pyrotechnics? At the very least, it tells us this, that God wants us to know who he is. More than that, he doesn't simply want us to know about him from a distance. He wants to be with us. He wants us to be with him. This is a vital dimension of any relationship, isn't it? Many of you, I know, have sustained long-distance relationships, and to do such a thing is incredibly hard. But what is the plan of such relationships? When you're in a long-distance relationship, what's the aim? Well, the end of that relationship is hopefully not that you end up in different states. At least it shouldn't be the end of uh, that relationship. It shouldn't be the goal. Uh, And if it is the goal, well, I'd love you to meet with me, and maybe it's time for some premarital counseling. Uh, When you love someone, when you commit to someone, you want to be together. That's the point. And, And how incredible, then, that God here comes down, that goes, descends. I mean, it could have gone the other way. Think about what we've already said. Who is the real catch in this relationship? Is it this holy, loving God, or is it these miserable, sorry, grumbling people? I mean, if I were God, I would have said, look, I'm up here, I'm waiting. There is a pile of wood. If you want to come to me, well, build a tower, build a ladder on your way up, come up, or something. Do your very best to come to me. But instead, God here comes down on this mountain in fire and in smoke, in a visible way, a way that that cannot be denied, a way that terrifies them, but in a way that leaves an indelible mark on their minds, and even in history. It tells us that God is the kind of God who is willing and able to come down, a God who, in his love, doesn't call us up to him, but comes down to us to meet us where we are. And if we see that in Exodus 19, how much more do we see that in the coming of the Lord Jesus? Listen to what we read in John chapter 1. Jesus writes about God's Son, the eternal Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what did God the Word do? Well, listen to his glorious descent in 1, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we have seen his glory, just as they saw the glory on the mountain. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus Christ, God came down. Not in fire and in smoke, but in hands that healed the sick, in words that raised the dead. God became man. Not, not only so that, that we could know what God is like, Jesus does that, but God became man because God desires to be with us and he wants us to be with him forever. Now, if this doesn't blow our minds, if it doesn't move our hearts, I, I wonder what would. That God would graciously declare his intent to make us his own? Well, that's an incredible thing. That God would have this global design that, that he would even use us to show his love to others. That God would uh, do such a great thing to achieve this. That he would gloriously descend in the person of his son. That instead of demanding that we climb up to him, that he would come down. Well, it certainly beats any. It beats a bouquet of flowers and a box of chocolates, doesn't it? But before we close, we need to highlight one uh, other incredibly important thing. All of this would be great if it wasn't for the somewhat somber tone that plays throughout this text. Because from beginning to end, we get a sense of grave danger. Grave danger, that's our fourth and final point. What I want to highlight is the inherent tension that we experience in Exodus 19. I mean, it all sounds great, doesn't it? God loves Israel enough to declare his love for them, to come down to them. But if it's so great, what is all of this about safety barriers being erected around the mountain? What is all of this talk about people being stoned or gunned down if they cross a line? And most shocking of all, why is it that we're warned three times that God himself poses a threat? Look down at verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord uh, to look, and many of them perish. What? Uh, Looking at God is somehow deadly? Well, yes, it is. Look at verse 22. It's worse than that. Uh, Also, let the priests come near to the Lord and consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them and you see the same phrase in verse 24 Uh, do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the lord lest he break out against them Uh, i'm coming down says god what an amazing thing but but don't let the people see me whatever you do Uh, don't let the people get close if they get too close i'm going to kill them that's what i have to do Uh, just as a side here if you encounter this on a date well of course you should head for the exit I mean, what is going on? What is this about? Why is there such a grave danger surrounding the presence of God? I mean, the answer is, we've already hinted at it. This is the answer, that God is perfectly holy, perfectly loving, perfectly righteous, perfectly just. And yet, what can we say about the people? They're unholy, they're unloving, they're unrighteous, they're unjust. God is good, but we are evil. you see, we can look at this whole scene and conclude that God looks bad, can't we? I mean, you look at this scene and I think that's immediately what we think. Why is God being so vindictive? Why is God being so mean? That would be to utterly miss the point. It would be to get it backwards. It would be to get it upside down. The shock isn't that, that God has come down. The shock is that God has not yet destroyed these people. The real shock is that he would save them, that he'd bring them to himself, that he would make them His own. Uh, the shock is that any of these things are happening in the first place. Uh, and unless we get a glimpse of the real danger here, I think we miss this point. In other words, we're meant to look at this marriage between God and sinful humanity, and, uh, and, and this is what we're meant to think. We're meant to think, look, this match is never, ever going to work. I mean, have you ever been uh, perhaps even at a wedding and have felt this way? Or maybe a friend of yours introduces you to a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend, and... And you wonder, well, well, should I say something? I mean, this is never going to work. And you wonder, like, is it, is it my place to say something? I mean, I have been to weddings where I, I know I wasn't the only one there wondering how long this would last. I mean, it's such a tragic thing to say this. It's such a tragic thing to think. But not every marriage is a match made in heaven. And some of you have painfully experienced this, although though praise God, he is sovereign. And so what are we to make of this match between humanity and God? Well, they're getting married. It's just that humanity is so sinful that they can't make it up the aisle without God killing them. I mean, it's a shocking thing, isn't it? Here is the wedding set, but but God's people are not allowed to make it up the mountain. They can't come to God. He's too holy. They are too sinful. We see this tension heightened as the book goes on. As we begin to learn about the sacrifices, we begin to see about this tabernacle in the midst. In fact, we see this throughout the Bible as a whole. And this is really what the whole Bible is all about. It's what Christianity is about. It's about what God has done to resolve this tension. How can wicked, sinful, rebellious people like us ever be restored to a right relationship with a holy, perfect God, the God who made us? And the ultimate answer the Bible gives is only in one way, only through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus came. Not only to present us with this gracious declaration of God's intent, uh, and not only to show us God's global design of reaching all nations, uh, not only was his coming this glorious descent, God coming down to us, no, the reason he came down was this, so that in his own life, in his own death, he could take upon himself this grave danger. Jesus was and is perfect. Jesus never rebelled against God. Jesus didn't deserve to die. Of all people, as a man, he was the only one who deserved to make his way up that smoking mountain. And yet Jesus walked up a different mountain, bearing a cross. In our place, Jesus did die. He was punished by God. The Lord, his father, broke out against him. Not because of anything he had done, but because of what we have done. Because we have blown past God's boundaries. Jesus Christ was stoned and pierced with arrows in our place. He was crushed for us. And so as we look back on Valentine's Day, we have to say, is this not the true and the truest romance? God's unfathomable, incomparable, unconditional love for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, so that whether we celebrate Valentine's Day or not, we should celebrate this. This is our hope. This is our comfort. In fact, we often declare together that what is your only comfort in life and in death, that we say these words, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior. If you belong to him, rejoice in this. And if you don't, then come to him today. May the gracious declaration, the global design, and the glorious descent of the one who bore the gravest danger on our behalf be our only comfort and our only joy today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your gracious gracious love shown towards towards us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that in him you have, have brought us into relationship with yourself. You've declared your commitment to us. Lord, you've made us your own people. You've brought us into covenant with yourself. And so, Lord, we pray that you would sustain us with this great hope, this great joy, not of our commitment to you, not of our love for you, but of your love for us in sending Jesus. Lord, we pray for each one of us that our hearts would be moved to understand these things, to call out to Jesus Christ, to know his love for us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.